Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the programme. This week, the hedgehog and the fox go looking for those much-despised denizens of our urban landscape, gulls in the company of writer, birdwatcher and radio producer Tim D. We've brought them in towards us, we've drawn them in, they've come in in our slipstream, and yet at the same time we're repelled by them and, and, and wish to repel them. It wasn't always like this. Tim writes in his new book, Landfill, Gulls were the sea's creatures for a long time. Far out, they didn't find their way into human places, or feature much, when early naturalists first began to write about birds they had seen. Gulls were unfamiliar, and were figured as wild and remote, keeping cold company with oceans, storms and ice. How different from the gulls we now see squabbling over gaping rubbish bags on city streets. Gulls have come towards us, is how Tim puts it, and so they find themselves caught in an ecological trap with us. When we piled food waste indiscriminately in landfill sites, the good times rolled for the gulls. Now, our waste management practices are changing, and the pickings are less rich. Some gull species are endangered, yet still they're demonised, still high on the list of creatures the tabloids love to hate. But we'll return to all that. When I met him at home in Bristol recently, I began by asking him how birds that many of us rarely give a second glance emerged from his peripheral vision to occupy his full attention. I mean, I've been a bird watcher for 50 years or so. I started as a little boy and got keen on birds in my back garden and, you know, widened my horizons through birds, went you know out into the world because of birds. Gulls had occurred to me, as they will and do, but they were still basically marine birds, seagulls. I knew seagulls wasn't the right word for them because they, you know, there's no such thing as a seagull. They all had their own species name. But they were still principally, basically, birds of the, of the coastal age until I was an adult. By that time, I'd sort of realised I knew my gulls. I thought I knew my gulls uh, and I thought I knew where they were. And then as an as a adult in early middle age, I suppose, I was spending more time in cities because I had a young family, was living back in Bristol here. And it suddenly dawned on me that the birds were around me in a way that they hadn't been as, as a younger bird watcher. And I'd grown up with these birds as pretty much at least connected with water. Uh, and here they were in Bristol, which is where I made this discovery, um, 
a long way away from the water and seemingly not needing the water really. The big species, the herring gulls and the lesser blackback gulls particularly. And those were birds which really were big and they were increasingly in evidence in, in the quite crowded quarters of the city. And I mean, I, I kind of worked out what was going on. I mean, they, were, they, they had made their way into the city because it was a good place for them to be living in. Uh, that was abundantly clear. But it was new to me and, and that started me off on a series of thoughts and investigations as to you know what other people had made of that, why other people had noticed that in the first place, and what was going on with this species, these species, and and their relationship with people. Why they why had they started coming towards us at a time when most other birds and most other wildlife was moving in the opposite direction? And as you say in the book, they are both large and present, and yet it is very easy to be blind to them, just to regard them as a sort of you know, in the middle distance, part of the, the street furniture. And, and I mean, did you, did you, even as a bird watcher, did you have to make a sort of effort to attend to them, to begin to take more notice of them in the city? Yeah, I think they, in walking this, negotiating our paths through the city, they become like pigeons do at the limits of our vision. That You know, they are a kind of large white pigeon in some ways to some people. Uh, and can stay like that for most of us. They, they're pretty canny at actually avoiding us uh, in, insofar as they need to. I mean, they're, they're there closer to us than we think, a bit like the, the urban rat, perhaps, as well. There was something else going on with them as well, which was interesting and became interesting when I began looking at them and thinking about it, which was that um, the birds I'd grown up with, thinking there were two or three species, had had been looked at by taxonomists and systematicians and were discovered to be more than that. I mean, the birds were still the same. That's, this is the intriguing thing about taxonomy and systematics. Uh, often, often we're talking about this, the very same individuals, but, uh, but the taxonomists have decided that these birds, which previously I'd grown up thinking were, were subspecies or races of the herring gulls, say, turned out to be separate species. So suddenly, not only were the birds in the city and visible uh, if you looked for them or noticed them, there were also in some ways more birds to see. Uh, and so as a bird watcher, that piqued my interest, and it had already piqued the interest of more committed, hardcore birdwatchers than myself, who, by the time I started looking, already has, had established themselves as as a sort of subset of birdwatchers, gull, gullers, larophiles, obsessives, uh, wonderful pursuers of these of these birds that no one else was paying much attention to in places which no one else particularly wanted to be in. Are these larophiles, these gull lovers, are they, are they slightly looked down upon by other bird watchers? Are they re- regarded as a r- rather strange subspecies themselves? Gull watchers are, very, um, are a particular subset of bird watchers. And they're interesting for that reason, in a way. You know, they've, they, they've, they have chosen to spend time in these nasty places with birds that are often regarded by other bird watchers as not very interesting. And certainly, increasingly these days, regarded by the public as, as nuisances. They're also quite difficult to, to tell apart, those gulls. I mean, that's one of the reasons why those men are spending so much, so much time attending to them, is because they're, they're interested in their own field craft. They're, they're, they're developing their skills in separating these birds. I mean, they're not going to, to marshland or heathland or woodland. They're going often um, to where gulls congregate, and that, that is landfill sites. And you've been hanging out in quite a fair number of landfill sites yourself in in the last few years as you were researching and writing this book yeah i've become a addict of rubbish there's lots of interesting things going on with the way we 
we throw our rubbish away in, in Britain today. Um, the first thing was that the, the gulls were finding a, a, a food source often close to the cities where they were also attracted to live in for all sorts of reasons. But they were feeding not only in the from the city rubbish, rubbish in the streets of our cities and towns, but also were congregating in particular numbers to feed in these landfill sites, rubbish dumps, around the edges of our cities, the places which we've a while ago condemned to be the places where we threw away our, our junk and our trash. Landfill sites, as we know them now, exist thanks to the Clean Air Acts of the mid-1950s, which banned the burning of waste in Britain. That was a part of the smog-busting campaigns of those times. You know, there was too much atmospheric pollution being caused by the burning of waste, not only food waste, but all rubbish. So that then meant that all that junk had to be thrown away in a particular place. And the landfill site was born such as we know it to this day, although, interestingly, at the very moment we're speaking, the kind of end of the landfill, the end of the, of the vibrant, vital landfill is coming towards us because we're now becoming better at uh, recycling and uh, at disposing of our food waste before it gets to the landfill site. We're either composting it or, or we're turning it into usable gases. So actually there's less food waste going into landfill sites these days. So the gulls and their gull moment are coming to an end uh, in the landfill sites. Numbers are now falling because some of these places are still continuing to take lots of our rubbish. Let's not pretend that we've become a less throwaway society, which we haven't really, although we're just marginally better at separating out our rubbish. So the gulls are going to landfill sites and finding less and less. And so now, you know, the, this moment of boom times for the gulls coinciding with our throwaway society of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, if you like, is coming to an end. We'll see. No one quite knows what's going to happen yet. But uh, rubbish dumps have been the place to go. And the birds have congregated there in enormous numbers. And they're easy. To, once you've negotiated access, these places aren't the easiest of places to get to. As for bird watchers, you often have to be escorted onto the site and escorted off the site. They're very dynamic as very as very as very as, as well as very feculent areas, extraordinary places. I mean, a total bizarre landscape, a kind of inverse of the rest of the world, a place that's accumulating rubbish that has this weird combination to it of of being both the stuff we don't want, and yet often stuff that re remains curiously vital and, and vibrant. Um, uh, you become an adept in these weird places of a kind of mirror to the rest of life that's what they seem to me to be about these they, they are in a way the the white of all of our black or the black of all of our white you know everything that we've once had and decided we don't want becomes rubbish and what is rubbish why don't we any longer care for this thing that we once lived off so it, it the spending time on those landfill sites in in the company people who were committed to if you like, working the gulls for what their value was became really interesting to me, a way of thinking not only about modern nature, but about how we are ourselves in, in, our, in our modern nature, how, how we've, we've come to regard our own waste and how we think of things that we once had close to us when we decided we no longer want them. There's a terrific scene in, in the book, Tim, that will definitely stick in my mind. 
on a landfill site, I think, in Essex, where you're with a group of people who are netting and ringing the birds. And it is, as you've just been sort of saying, sort of pululating with life. It's an amazing scene. Had you done anything like that before? Was um, you know had had your other close encounters with birds been of a a very different type? Can you say a little bit about about what that that experience was like? This is Pitsy in Essex, which is a is a fantastic landfill site on the north shore of the Thames in Essex. Essex being a location for a number of important landfill sites, as far as gulls are concerned, but also just simply lots of lots of rubbish dumps. It's Essex, the county which has taken London's rubbish for a very long time in all sorts of ways, and uh, and now is is still in some ways answering uh, London's needs by accepting truckloads of, of, of stuff still. To go bringing gulls there with the North Thames Gull Group was an extraordinary experience. I, I had done a little bit of ringing before, but of smaller birds in more bucolic places. But uh, the experience of, of going there, complicated negotiations with the truck drivers who are bringing in the rubbish, elaborate um, preparations of setting a uh, the cannon nets, so nets which were going to be detonated and launched over the birds in a place where the rubbish, that day's rubbish, was going to be distributed and macerated into the ground to richly open these disgusting bags of stuff. Although, as I've been saying, actually less less rubbish going into these places than in previous times. So a complicated and uh, elaborate negotiation so that when a decent truckload of stuff that came from restaurants uh, came into the site, uh, it was siphoned off and, and delivered to the place where we'd set up our nets or our nets in waiting. Then when the birds come down, having the, the rubbish having been macerated open and being disgustingly appealing to them, at a certain moment, the, the the net launcher chooses his shot and and detonates his cannons, and off goes this net, arcing above the the roiling mass of birds who were who were otherwise engaged with getting their naan breads and their chicken wings and what have you, from underneath, and the birds are trapped, or a lot of the birds are trapped. And the last time I was there, which is a fantastic day, we got four hundred gulls in one net which is an extraordinary sight. It's like seeing the net goes over the birds. The birds are no longer interested in food. They want to escape. It's like seeing a, a net of bulging net of fish brought to the surface, except the surface is itself in disturbance. The, the, the difference between the gulls and the rubbish becomes pretty marginal at that point, and, and uh, you, you hurry in, all safety of the birds paramount, of course, but uh, and extract the birds from the net, and it's an, it's an extraordinary um, a sequence of, of events that then has to take place the calming of the birds, the securing the, the, them out, out, from under the net, putting them in a, in a, in a hessian sack where they're, they're kept for a while until, uh, until all the birds have got out of the net and then you start on the actual ringing process. This is all not just for fun. There's a serious intent behind this. Um, it has conservation implications. It has uh, scientific research implications. The, the birds are being studied in order to assess how many there are, where they come from, where they go on to. Rings are fitted onto their legs, both uh, metal rings and colour rings, so that they can be that birds can be observed and re-identified later on where in other places they go to. Sometimes caught again and, and re-measured. So extraordinary amounts of information is coming from these encounters. The encounter itself is 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 an amazing thing to hold one of these large gulls in your hand to manoeuvre this bird and the strong beaks, heavy milling, flapping wings. The birds don't really want to be anywhere near you, but uh, and they, 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 they're difficult to get out of the net, difficult to put into the sack, difficult to take out of the sack, and difficult to manoeuvre in your hands. You've trained ringers are, are rather wonderful to watch because as they can manoeuvre these birds. I was always a beginner, never more than a beginner, and it was an extraordinary experience to see 
myself holding these things that I'd previously spent years of my life looking at at a distance uh, and manoeuvring them around and then putting a ring on their leg, releasing them back into the sky uh, with this sense that uh, this encounter that neither of us has had before, me with the gull, the gull with the person, would be it's somehow written into their li- the rest of their lives. You know, they carry this ring with them forever after that point. And maybe someone, someone else, or maybe even me, another time in the in another rubbish dump, will will re-coincide with that gull and check it out uh, like an old friend, find out where it's been and what it's been doing in the meantime. So there's a is a curious intimacy that 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 brings you with the wild, and and it's is even made even more strange by happening in a place where effectively most of society thinks there's nothing good can is is can come of that place you know this is a, a rubbish dump where we want to put the end of our lives and yet here here we were with the north thames gull group um extending life if you like by um by investigating these birds by holding them to us and then letting them go with this little bit of evidence of the meeting attached to their legs and you say in the book i'm not sure if it's you or one of your interviewees who says that gulls really do polarise opinion. There are very few people who look warm about them. They're either pro or they're anti. And this anti seems to go back quite a long way, even before they, they came into the cities. You quote one writer writing in the 20s who, who refers to, I think, the sort of cruelty in their eyes, is Anthony Collett, who says they're eager and remorseless, and there's cruelty and, and greed. So they clearly touch a nerve, and it's not just when they started raiding bins outside takeaways in the, in the, the late 20th century. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think this the journey from the seagull to the gull the journey of the gulls coming ashore, which is actually uh, older than the last 20 or 30 years, is actually a a hundred-year-long movement of birds, coincides with a change in our impression of what these birds are, what they mean to us. Before the beginning of the 20th century, they were seabirds, and and people regarded them as as birds of the outer sea. They were distant. They, They had a kind of Arctic tang to them often. They were tough storm-associated birds. You never saw them anywhere but on the sea coast, and if they ever came inland, it was normally associated with bad weather. When gulls, black-headed gulls, first started coming up the River Thames, and it's amazing to think that London in the Victorian period, you know, the huge industrial city, didn't have any gulls in it, not even on the on the river. But when gulls did start coming up the river, it was because of bad weather in the late 1800s. And they were first identified as sort of enemies of the city in some way as 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 uh, as as beggars as, as as aliens as immigrants they were already thought of as hooligans as um opportunists rather than as as needy refugees i mean it was understood that they were there because the weather was cold and in fact some people significantly interestingly wh hudson writes very movingly about this some people working people discovered that the gulls were coming up the river and used to go and share bits of their scraps from their lunchbox with them. But other people, other commentators, thinkers about nature, people troubled by the kind of strength of nature, if you like, which comes out of this funny old ancient association between, you know, our species as and and other species and this sort of rivalrous nature of our of our encounter with the rest of the natural world. Those people 
thought these girls were, were, were bad and were, were, were chances and were gypsies or were hooligans, were, were basically unentitled immigrants, you know, who needed to be deported or needed to be sorted out one way or another. I mean, the parallels with, the, with, with racial science, um, with conservative right-wing fascistic thinking is striking. I mean, it does happen that some of those people who were writing about nature at that time did even entertain those ideas about people as well. So it's interesting that the, the meme of the of the gull, if that's the right word, its non-actual but imaginative potency stems from that time. And I think it's been written all the way down the years to now, where you have almost every summer this crazy tabloid uh, excitement uh, about in, in the, the, the kind of modern version of this encounter, which is the gull as, as the great thiever of our national chip, or... At least that's where it started. That's where it first came to prominence, the feeling that the seaside bird, which is still a seaside bird in the popular imagination, when we went on our seaside holidays, was feeding our, our, our precious chips and sometimes our precious ice creams. And this idea, which sure enough has happened, gulls get, you know, gulls are good opportunists and, and, and have clocked a, a food source, especially since we've created problems for them getting access to other bits of their food source, like the, like the marine life that they once would have lived off are indeed taking our chips. The gulls are taking our chips. They are attacking our national diet. But when we get to the stage of describing it as antisocial, as does happen, you think, wow, that's that's describing a lot of moral value, isn't it, to the behaviour of an animal? Yeah, and, and, and it's bizarre, and it's uh, a projection, obviously, in some ways, as I think it was in the, in the early 20th century, when when a kind of anxiety about the crowd in the street, in the human crowd in the street, was being written back on, onto these these birds. And nowadays it's, it's not dissimilar in some ways. You know, the, the Essex man on holiday is written up as being a kind of collaborator with the with with these gulls it's a sort of indication of our of our of something nasty in our in in the way we want to organize the, the our people as well as organize our our nature it's very striking that this happens always in the summertime and there's a, there's a kind of shape to the, the the pattern you know it begins with these small scale encounters and then someone some some bird is reported to have attacked a, a, a you know a, a pet rather than a just stealing some fish and chips there was a, a wonderful series of, of of encounters where the gulls were taking a tortoise and then a chihuahua and sure enough a tabloid newspaper found a, a so-called expert who would say you know the next thing on the list will be a human tot so, I mean, which isn't going to happen, rest assured, I, it's not going to happen. I have held a large gull, a great blackback gull, and it made my hand bleed uh, with its beak strength, but it's, it could not lift even the smallest of human babies from any pram or out of it, the arms of any mother or father. But th this cycle of, of this, this panic goes through the human flock in the way that uh, uh, it might do through a flock of gulls themselves. And it's a little bit, it reminded me a little bit of the dangerous dogs phenomenon, that we are really discomforted by a species which does not behave in the way that we expect it to, when it sort of oversteps the bounds that we think it should adhere to. And that's very much what, what gulls are doing, you know, encouraged by the fact that we've got fast food and we're sort of wandering along the, the promenade eating a burger or whatever. In the same way, when, it, when an animal steps over those bounds, it's, it's bad news, isn't it? It's bad news when an animal steps out of those bounds. Uh, and the, big, the biggest irony of all is that, of course, what these birds are doing is being quite good at, at being 
get doing living replica replica lives to our own. Uh, so occupying niches, occupying niches, mimicking our behaviour, seeing opportunities created by our excess and our and our, our dangerous doggishness or our gullishness. You've, you've sort of alluded to this already. You are almost as fascinated by rubbish as you are by the gulls. And I love the the sort of literary manifestations that you weave through the book, from from Mayhew writing about the poor in the nineteenth in century London and and Dickens and Curtsy in South Africa, and but Beckett seemed to me to really. To really, you, you really seem to resonate to the tone of Beckett when he when he arrives at the rubbish dump. This sort of sense of of end times. Am I, am I right in thinking he he does he does strike a particular note that you respond to? Yeah, I, well, I've always loved Beckett's writing. It's always been very um, important to me, uh, both the plays and the prose. Uh, I saw a performance of Endgame at a Beckett festival in in Northern Ireland, and uh, there was the word gull in the middle of this play. And and there's always rubbish in Beckett. There's the same play's got the famously uh, the parents of the main character in the play living in dustbins on stage. Another play, Happy Days, has got a woman emerging out of a kind of mound like a kind of giant ant lion or something in a sandy burrow on a seaside holiday that's turned badly wrong, it looks like. Uh, she's half buried. There's a lot of rubbish. There's endless rubbish in Beckett. Uh, he was very interested in Disjector, that was the title, I think, of a, a late collection of his uh, prose writing, the stuff we throw away. But there's always attendant upon that is this feeling that we might be rubbish as well. If we, we, we surround ourselves with a kind of clutter and a kind of crap, and is this simply our, a kind of exfoliation of our own lives uh, falling around us at our feet? You could say the same looking around my flat now. I think he, he was a... He was a a writer very interested in getting as close to the end of life as it would be possible to be living close to the end of life throughout life. I'm mean, not saying that that's a philosophy I, I subscribe to myself, but um, I think paying attention to someone who thinks has thought about that, I find incredibly stimulating, very funny in, in some ways. It's as funny as, as seeing gulls steal food out of the hands of holidaymakers in Cornwall in some funny way. I, I, see, I see the kind of modern clash of life there, the kind of dark pastoral. And I think Beckett's curiously interested in, in the pastoral, actually. I mean, he, he there's, there's striking dreams in lots of his characters towards uh, or remembrances of of greener times, of less rubbished times, of youth, but also of, of the possibility of renewal, of, of the earth as a kind of green motor and engine that can go on and live when so obviously the, the human life on earth is only going and always is go, only going in Beckett in one direction. Uh, so that's I was very struck by that, and it was amazing to have actually a, a Beckett character talking about gulls and the greyness of gulls. Uh, and of course, in this particular case, in Endgame, the gulls that the character's looking for aren't actually there. <laughs> so it's a sort of double negation. The gulls as a kind of signifier of of rubbish and and the bleakness of modern life, but and a kind of compounded by the very fact that the, the, the poor character is looking for them in order to feel at least he's got that and, and discovering that, there's, that there aren't even any gulls to be seen out of the window that he's looking through. And Tim, finally, how do you feel about the prospects for real gulls? I mean, on one hand, 
we've got tabloid hysteria and and Facebook groups called Kill the, All the Gulls. And on the other hand, some species are on the, the red list and several of them are on the, the amber list in terms of um, in terms of their prospects. Yeah, and often the same birds, the same species are concerned. I mean, we, it's a paradox. It seems to be a very particular paradox about modern life and modern nature that the, that the things are we're in some level anxious about the survival of, of, of species and biodiversity. Uh, these birds are not doing very well, and they're not doing very well mostly because we've made their lives difficult, uh, you know, overfishing ourselves, leaving not much left for them to eat, and, and, and uh, overdevelopment of coastal landscapes, meaning there's not many other places for them to go and, and live in. Uh, so we've, we've brought them in towards us. We've drawn them in. They've come in in our slipstream. And yet, at the same time, we're repelled by them and, and, and wish to repel them. So it's a paradox of modernity, I think. Um, I haven't written a book about the turtle dove, and I haven't written a book about the spotted flycatcher, these kind of quiet, delicate, beautiful members of the, of the British avifauna who have basically just disappeared uh, in the last 20 or 30 years, you know, populations down by 90%, things like that, a total catastrophe, unnoticed by most people. Gulls have bucked that trend in one way, you know, have come towards us, uh, are visible in the way that they didn't used to be. But also at the same time, their their lives are remain as, as marginal and as and as hectically compromised and as difficult as, as, as any other bird species. I mean, they they briefly look like they've been able to do well on our backs, if you like, but it's the probably the future is is not as good for them as as the present is we'll see i suppose the, in the end the the, the 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 moment is particularly interesting now is because they haven't become surrendered to us in the way that other bits of urban wildlife have come become the pigeon the domestic pigeon the feral pigeon is not a wild bird anymore it's it's in the in the same way it's almost like a kind of a, a licensed pet in the in our towns and cities the gulls you know maybe are on their way to becoming that where their lives are so intimately connected to the people around them that they have no possibility of living away from us. But at the moment, they're still as as wild as, as they ever were. They just happen to be amongst us in a way that they haven't been before. That makes them interesting and troubling in, in all sorts of ways. It also means that it, it may well be a moment that's going to not go on forever. Uh, it might be that the gull moment really is passing and that um, the threatened status of the gulls will become increasingly their, their condition and, and the cities won't be able to save them. I was talking to Tim D about his book, Landfill. It's published by Little Toller Books. That's spelt T-O-L-L-E-R. You can find out more about it on their website. It's a very fine piece of non-fiction writing. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.